Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. This must be Hebrews night here at Community Baptist Church. Hebrews chapter 12. What Brother Willis did not get to finish, I will pick up where he left off. Hebrews 12. We did not coordinate this. The Lord put it together, so we did not compare notes. We'll just see what the Lord has for us. I do want to say a hearty thank you to all of you who prayed for me Uh, when I had some health issues earlier this year. I uh, was hit very hard by a virus all of a sudden on March 19th. I remember it well. And uh, came out of nowhere, didn't expect it of course, didn't see it coming, hit me hard, and it paralyzed one of my vocal cords. I understand now from the ear, nose, and throat doctor that everyone has two vocal cords, and uh, if one of them gets paralyzed, you have difficulty not only speaking, but swallowing. Oh boy, that was a major problem. I had to chew up food very finely and wash every bite down with liquid, and that went on for quite some time. And then, of course, it affected my speaking. And uh, breathing also, also affects how much air you can pull in, inhale. So anyway, I went to the doctor, he diagnosed paralyzed vocal cord, he said it might come back, it might not. Thank the Lord it did largely. I was not able to preach on Easter Sunday, imagine that, a pastor not able to preach on Resurrection Sunday, but uh, the Lord did give me a good measure of recovery. I still have partial paralysis of the vocal cord. I can speak. You can hear me well, I'm sure. Uh, but my voice gets weak at times and uh, it takes a toll. So thank you for your prayers. I, I appreciate it. A number of you mentioned that you've been praying and please do continue to pray as you think of it. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm reading verses 4 through 11. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, And we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby." When my children were younger, I disciplined them frequently. And for those of the children who were quite stubborn, discipline was quite frequent, as you can imagine. But thankfully, as they grew older, they learned to obey. And they received fewer spankings, so that alas, they now received none at all. My baby is now 19 years old. And uh, that doesn't mean that all of my children are perfect. They certainly are not. Neither is their father. My wife will be the first to attest to that. And, uh, but thankfully, my children are still maturing. And though they make mistakes, as a father, I lovingly instruct them and advise them and direct them and counsel them. But the time for spankings is over. They achieve their intended result in their lives. I say that because I believe the, true, the, the same is true for believers in a spiritual sense, at least ideally. We should be learning through the trials and the hardships that God brings across our, across our paths. And even those occasional spankings, so to speak, that God gives, So that we should not need as many as we used to get from the Lord. Spiritual maturity, of course, does not mean that you become without sin. But it does mean that you've grown up to some degree. And that you've added to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and patience, and godliness, and brotherly kindness, and love. That's the way it ought to work in the Christian life. 
As we grow more mature, we should require fewer lessons of instruction and fewer painful meetings with God out at the woodshed, if you know what I mean. That's what the Christian life should be like. Unfortunately, though, for many Christians, they don't learn what God wants them to learn. Or they resist his instruction, or they resist his painful discipline in their lives. Now, if that persists, one of two things happens as I understand it. In some cases, God may actually take the life of his child to keep that one from destroying him or herself and to keep them from destroying the reputation, the cause of Christ in this world. I believe that happens sometimes. In other cases, I think that God ceases to discipline. Ah, you say, can you defend that? Well, I think we can from this passage of Scripture. Contrary to popular understanding, God is under no obligation to continue disciplining, as I hope to demonstrate in the message tonight. Now, you might be surprised to discover that some of our preconceived notions or traditions regarding this text do not actually stand up under exegetical scrutiny. So we're going to take a close look at the text tonight and see what God is saying to us and take heed. Now, before we dig into our message, I need to give a five-minute crash course, as I call it, in God's Discipline 101. You didn't have the benefit of hearing the message I would have preached before this one, which I did in our church, uh, which lays the foundation for this message. But let me give you just a five-minute catch-up with that. And then after this introductory level review, we're going to drill deeper tonight. And hopefully we're going to see God's discipline from a much deeper perspective. We might use the illustration of an onion with all of its many layers. Uh, We're going to start in the outer layer. And then hopefully we're going to peel back layer after layer to see what lies beneath the surface. At least that's our intent for this evening. Now the crash course up front involves three questions. And I'm going to answer those briefly, and those will be three quick points to the message. But then after the three, I'm going to give you two more questions, and those we'll spend more time with, for that will be the heart of the message. Question number one, what is chastening? Well, our minds tend to think punishment, typically. But it's actually much more than that. The Greek word translated chastening is also translated by several other English words in our New Testament. And here are some of them. Nurture, instruction, learning, teaching, and correction. All of those words are translated from the same Greek word, which is translated chastening here in our text. So we need to learn to think bigger When we read about God's chastening in Hebrews chapter 12, it is not mere punishment. That is only one small piece of the chastening pie, if I might put it that way. So from now on, when you read Hebrews 12 and you read of God's chastening, don't think, ooh, punishment. Think, oh, that's God's complete training process for me as his child. And it involves things like nurture and instruction and and teaching and learning and correction. In fact, the biblical word chasing is the systematic training and instruction that are involved in child rearing. Or in this case, making a disciple. Now, perhaps it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Discipline is closely related to the words disciple and discipleship. That's by design, because they're all related. God's chastening is his entire process of training us to be more like Jesus Christ, conformed to the image of his dear son. And I got to tell you what, that process is painful because it doesn't come natural to us. In fact, it often includes rigorous and painful trials. So question number one, what is chastening? Well, it's a whole lot more than punishment. It's everything that's involved in rearing a child. And you know, those of you that are parents, punishment hopefully was a very small part of what you had to do in child rearing. There's a whole lot more to it than that. And so it is with God's discipline of you. Question number two, 
How should we, we respond to God's chastening? Well, the twofold answer is found in verse 5. Let's read it again. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. First, how should we respond to God's chastening? Do not despise it. The word despise means to take it lightly. Or we could say brush it off or regard it as just a trivial thing. Oh, don't do that. God's chastening is important in your life. Thus, we should take his trials seriously. Now, how do we often tend to despise the chastening of the Lord in our lives? Think about this. I'll give you a few ways. Maybe you can come up with some more. One way is by chafing under the pressure. Complaining, griping, can't believe I have to go through this again. This health problem, this financial problem, this relationship problem I have in my life. Oh, I can't believe I have to go through this again. That's chafing at God's discipline in your life, and it's not receiving it in the right way. It's despising it. Another way we do this is by questioning God. Oh, the Lord must not love me anymore. Or he's just so unjust. I mean, look at the other church members. They're not going through things like I am. You ever feel that way? God is just unfair. Here's another way that we despise the Lord's chastening, by trying to escape it. Doing everything we can to dodge it, get out from underneath it, solve the the issues so that we don't have to continue to face his trials. Here's a fourth way we despise the Lord's chastening, by not learning from it. God brings a trial along. He's trying to teach you something. You blow it off. You don't take it seriously. You chafe under the pressure. You don't learn the lesson he's trying to teach you. I tend to think he'll bring it around again in some other way to help you learn the lesson he's trying to teach you. And finally, number five, at least on my list, how do we despise the Lord's chastening? By not being joyful in the midst of trials. What's it say in the book of James? Count it all joy. When you fall into diverse temptations or various kinds of trials, is that how you respond when you go through trials in life? Thank you, Lord. I'm going to rejoice. When that health problem comes along, Lord, I don't know why you sent it, but I'm just going to rejoice in you. That's what he wants you to do. And i got to tell you this, you know you're growing up as a child of God when your responses toward trials become joyfulness rather than chafing and questioning God and trying to escape and duck it and not learning from it. When you're joyful in the midst of trials, you're growing up. When trials come along, folks, don't despise them. Don't chafe. Listen to what God is telling you. Now, there's a second way we should respond to God's chastening. The first is by not despising it. But it also tells us in verse 5 that we should not faint. And it repeats it again in verse 7. I would call this by enduring the trials. That's the way that we respond to God's chastening, by enduring. Enduring is the idea of bearing up under the pressure. Do you know that this building tonight has some kind of roof trusses up there holding up that ceiling so that this whole thing doesn't come collapsing down upon us? If that were not the case, everything would come crashing down. The word endurance is the idea of roof trusses. It's the idea of bearing up under the pressure. So when God brings trials into your life, he expects you to bear up under the pressure by his grace. And his grace is sufficient, he says so. Now the word faint is here in our text. That's what we should not do. The word faint means to literally be small-hearted. Lacking courage. The idea of becoming discouraged and wanting to quit. Fainting is not enduring. It's not bearing up under the pressure. It's losing heart. Maybe even getting angry. Well, don't get discouraged. When trials come along, don't get down. Rejoice. God's doing something in your life. Oh, but that doesn't come natural to us. We chafe. We don't like trials. We get angry. We get discouraged. Oh, we need to learn to submit to God's divine hand bearing down upon us. It's for our good. 
endure to the end of life's marathon so that one day we can hear him say at the judgment seat, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, how can we possibly live like this? Well, he gives us the answer in verse number two, by looking unto Jesus. And how do you look unto Jesus? He gives us a lengthy answer to that question in chapter 11, and it's simply by faith, depending upon him. Well, that brings me to the third and final question in our crash course, and I think I took a little longer than five minutes with this, but it's an important foundation. Why does God chasten us? Well, verse 6 tells us, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. God chastens you, he disciplines you, he child-rears you, because he loves you. Find comfort in that. Again, our response typically when trials come along, Oh, I can't stand this, I hate this, why is God doing this? No! Rejoice because he loves you. That's why he's doing it. But second, look at verses 10 and 11. For they, this is our earthly parents, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. God is disciplining you for your profit, for your benefit, for your welfare, for your advantage. He cares about you so much. He wants you to grow in the Lord. He wants you to turn out right. He's a good father. He wants to be able to say well done to you. He also, as the verse says, wants us to become partakers, that means sharers, in his holiness. You know, that's a magnificent concept. God wants us to share his holiness. We don't deserve that. Well, how does that happen? When we endure our trials, when we endure our crosses, so to speak, as Jesus endured his sufferings, when we respond in joyfulness, we actually learn to live in holiness. Verse 11 reminds us that discipline is not enjoyable but grievous. You know, children don't enjoy the rigors of child-rearing and discipline. Children would rather go outside and play. (laughs) And they especially abhor punishment. You know, as adults, we're not much different. Nobody likes to go to the woodshed, and nobody likes to spend the time submitting to God's child-rearing in their lives. We want to go out and play. Live for ourselves. Have everything happy, everything comfortable, especially here in the States. But the end result of God's trials is blessed because it says here, afterward... It yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness, but only for those who are exercised thereby. That is, only for those who endure God's boot camp will there be sweet dividends. If you are not responding rightly to God's trials in your life, you will not be rewarded at his judgment bar. I mean, this is a serious issue. But if you do respond rightly in joyfulness, And obviously that's a growing thing. Trial by trial, we learn more and more to respond in joyfulness to the Lord. But if we do, we will become mature, complete Christians, lacking nothing. That's what it says in James chapter 1. All right, we are now officially finished with God's discipline 101, but now we're going to drill down deeper, questions 4 and 5. This is where we'll spend a little more time. What is the ultimate purpose for chastening? Well, to answer that question correctly, we have to understand the purpose for this book. The writer to the Hebrews is addressing born-again believers, not merely professing believers, as so many have incorrectly interpreted, but actual born-again believers. This book has nothing to do with salvation from eternal condemnation. It has everything to do with the salvation of the soul. The matter of sanctification or discipleship leading to eternal rewards. In fact, I preached a series on this book in my church, and I called it Persevering Unto Reward. 
You notice it's not the Calvinist persevering unto salvation. It's the biblical persevering unto reward. That's what this book is all about. And so I'm going to approach this specific text tonight on the basis that the writer is addressing believers. That's his audience. So that includes all of us. This book is for us, as is all the scripture. Now, by extension, the writer is telling about the importance of persevering even amidst persecution so that we can be rewarded at the judgment seat. In fact, he warns throughout the book of the importance of enduring and not falling from grace. That's a recurring theme. Warnings all through the book. He wants us to remain obedient and faithful unto the Lord. Look at verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Oh, we must persevere. We must endure and not fail of God's grace. So we can glorify the Lord and we can be rewarded. Now this is where we start to get a little deeper. Another layer is going to come off the onion here in just a moment. What do we mean by reward? Well, we understand that concept is all throughout the New Testament, but did you know it's right here in the context of this passage too? The answer to that question, what is reward, is actually found in chapter 11, verse 35, which is part of the context. So look at that verse with me. It says, Women receive their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Notice now that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Think about that. They did not take the easy way of escape. They endured in obedience, even amidst the most horrible form of suffering, torture. Can you imagine being tortured for Christ? They endured it. Even in the Old Testament, they endured it for the sake of Jehovah. They endured the intense persecution. Why would they do this and not give up or give in? Well, the verse tells us. Because they wanted to obtain the better resurrection. I've titled the message, Obtaining a Better Resurrection. They wanted to earn that privilege. Now, why do I say earn? Well, the word obtain means to attain or secure. Let me ask you this question. Why would a believer in Christ need to attain or secure a better resurrection? Does that mean that we need to earn our place in the future resurrection of believers? No, of course not. That would imply a work salvation. All believers will be resurrected. That is guaranteed as part of your eternal security. Jesus said to Martha, and Brother John pointed that out this morning, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Job said, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. Resurrection. The resurrection of saints unto eternal life is a biblical doctrine. By the way, so is the resurrection of unbelievers unto eternal damnation. But that's not our focus tonight. Well, why then, think with me now, would a believer need to attain to a better resurrection? What could be better about it? This is where we drill down some more. Before answering that, I would like to clarify that I do not personally hold to the partial rapture position. That view teaches that only faithful saints will be raptured before the tribulation. Carnal saints will be resurrected after the tribulation. Those who hold to the partial rapture view believe the better resurrection then is the privilege of being resurrected before the tribulation because all others will have to go through the tribulation and wait till later. Well, I don't believe the scripture teaches that. I do believe that all saints, whether spiritual or carnal, will be resurrected at the same time together. And I believe 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 teach that. 
Uh, But that is outside of the scope of my message this evening. I'm not going to speak on that any further other than to let you know that I do not believe the better resurrection of chapter 11, verse 35 is referring to a partial rapture. What is it referring to? Well, to attain or secure a better resurrection is to be rewarded in a special way, and that's only for those saints who are faithful to the Lord. They have obtained or earned the privilege of something better in their resurrection. Now, here's what I'd like to do as we continue to pull off layers of the onion. Let's take a step-by-step approach to deciphering what this better resurrection is all about. Incidentally, the word obtain here in chapter 11, verse 35, is also used in Luke's gospel. Would you turn with me, please? Bookmark Hebrews 12. Let's go to Luke's gospel, chapter 20. And find verse 34. Luke 20 and verse 34. And bear with me tonight as we go to a couple of different places to piece together some understanding of this better resurrection. Look at verse 34. Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain, there's our word, that world, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Here's what's happening here. Let me give you some context. The Sadducees are trying to trip up Jesus with a hypothetical dilemma that they are proposing. They say to Jesus, let's suppose that a woman's husband dies And according to the Leveret marriage law, she marries her husband's brother, just as it says in the Old Testament. But he then dies. So she marries another brother. And on and on this goes seven times. (laughs) Uh, Situation ethics, I guess you might call it. A little bit hypothetical, that's for sure. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Aha! They think they have Jesus. Well, we're not going to get into the nuts and bolts of his complete answer to them. But let me point this out. This same story is not only told here in Luke, but also in Matthew and Mark, all three of the synoptic gospels. In Matthew and Mark, the answer given by Jesus, though, does not include the statement that we read here in verse 35. What is that statement? But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead. That's not in the other books. But in the other books, he does say, as he says here, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as angels of God in heaven. So, it appears common to all believers that in the resurrected state there will be no marriage. Now, we're not going to get into the details of what all that means tonight. That's outside of the scope of our study. But, apparently... Some believers, those mentioned here in the Luke passage, which is in the context of Jesus talking about the kingdom, some believers will be accounted worthy to obtain that world or that age. Now again, we don't obtain, that is, attain or earn general resurrection because we believe all saints will be raptured. It's guaranteed. So Jesus must be speaking of the faithful who are rewarded with the privilege of ruling in the kingdom of the heavens, the new Jerusalem. And there are numerous references to that all throughout the Synoptic Gospels. That's the better resurrection in a general sense. It is the privilege of being able to rule and reign with Jesus from the heavenly headquarters during the millennial reign of Christ. You will be with him. You will rule with him. You will be in that heavenly Jerusalem while all others are in the darkness outside. But look what Jesus says about those who earn this privilege. He says in this verse, verse 35, they are accounted worthy. Now in the context of the book of Hebrews, we know that this means they are faithful. They persevered in faith unto the very end. But look at verse 36 in our text. Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. 
Now, the key to understanding this statement here is understanding the Greek word translated children. The word for children in the Greek here is huias. Now, those of you that know that word, it means a mature adult standing son, typically used of firstborn sons. Now, look back at verse 31 for a moment. The Sadducees are giving their story here, and they say the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children. In that verse, it's a different Greek word. It's technon, which refers typically to young children in general, sometimes immature. But I want you to notice this contrast. In verse 35, it is huias, mature sons, that have the status of firstborn sons. The latter group in verse 35 are those who are accounted worthy to obtain that world. Excuse me, it's verse 36. Jesus says of them, they are mature sons of God, mature sons of the resurrection. There is something better for them about the resurrection than what everyone else experiences because they're firstborn sons. They're worthy ones. They have found, been found worthy to obtain that age. They are inheritors of the kingdom, children of the new Jerusalem, which is not the case for unfaithful saints. Now, to develop our understanding of this concept further, let's go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The words of the Apostle Paul. I love this passage. Find verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. In the spirit of Hebrews 12, Paul wants to submit completely to God's divine discipline in his life so that he can partake of Christ's sufferings in joyfulness. Okay, that's simple. For what purpose? Look at verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Hmm. Now there's something fascinating under the surface of this verse. Many of you already know where I'm going with this. The Greek word translated resurrection is not simply anastasis as elsewhere. It's ex-anastasis. So the prefix ex makes a distinction. It's not merely resurrection, it's out-resurrection. So Paul hopes to attain, that is to arrive at, the out-resurrection. Well, does that mean that Paul is not sure that he will be raptured and he hopes that he will be? No. The Greek wording seems to indicate that Paul longs To be included in the out-resurrection. A resurrection out from amongst the resurrected. It seems to be another reference to a better resurrection. A reward for those who persevere in faithfulness. Now, how will this out-resurrection work? We don't know for sure. But some have suggested it could be that after the rapture of the saints, uh, followed by the Bema judgment, Those receiving the verdict, well done, will be out-resurrected to the new Jerusalem for their duties as co-rulers with Christ. Makes a lot of sense. Can't be dogmatic about that, but it seems to fit the spirit of the passage here. And that would make, I don't know, to me it's logical, especially in light of verse 14. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I think he's talking about the better resurrection. Now, I want to be clear, we don't know the details of how this will work, but Scripture seems to indicate from these passages 
that a better resurrection of some sort, a reward is coming for those who persevere in faithfulness and obedience under pressure. And I believe that is the ultimate purpose for chastening. And that's contextual, is it not? Hebrews 12 is about God's chastening. Hebrews 11.35 in the context talks about those who wanted to obtain a better resurrection. So the purpose for God's chastening in the short run is to produce in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In the long run is so that we can obtain the better resurrection. Are you with me? That's quite a concept. Now we're going to peel off another layer of the onion. And we go to our final question, number five. Whom does God chasten? Oh boy, this gets quite interesting. The distinction that we've already looked at back in Luke between technon, children in general, and huias, mature, adult-standing, firstborn sons, is significant. And it's very important to our understanding of chastening in the book of Hebrews. Now, before we go back to Hebrews, I want you to take a quick stop with me at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we need a brief understanding of the difference between technon and huias, children in general, and mature sons, because that is going to be important to our understanding of whom God chastens in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 8 or excuse me, Romans 8. And look at verse number 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. Now guess what word is used of children here in verse 16? It's technon. It's children in general. In other words, the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Everyone here in the room tonight who is saved, a believer in Christ, you are a child of God, and the word used for that is technon. You are a child in general. But now look at verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God. Let me park there for just a moment. Are all believers led by the Spirit of God? No. (laughs) There are a lot of believers that are led by their own fleshliness. And they are producing works of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. They're not led by the Spirit of God. They're led by their own desires and impulses and passions. Okay, let's read the verse again, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, and I think we could say that's a subset of all believers, they are the sons of God. Ah, but you know what? Different word for sons here or children. It's not technon, children in general. It's huias, which means mature, firstborn sons. So here's the idea. Everyone here who is saved is a technon, child of God, basic child. But only those of you here who are truly faithful, who are truly being led by the Spirit of God and not your own fleshliness, you are mature sons. You are firstborn sons that Jesus is bringing unto glory. Now, the fact that Paul uses two different words is very significant. He is distinguishing between immature children And mature firstborn children. And by the way, Jesus did the same thing in Luke chapter 20, the passage we just looked at. Now go back with me to Hebrews 12, and let's put this all together. I want you to see something incredible. I misunderstood this passage for years. Look at verse 7. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Don't miss this. All throughout the Hebrews 12 text, the word for sons is huias, mature, firstborn sons. Now I want to explain this further as we go along. But the contrast is profound. It's between firstborn sons and illegitimate sons. Perhaps I can put it this way to explain a little bit. 
illegitimate sons are the idea of technon, immature sons on steroids. (laughs) They're really carnal ones. They've persisted in their immaturity and their carnality as saints. They've done what verse 5 says not to do. What does verse 5 tell us not to do? It tells us don't despise the chasing of the Lord and don't faint when you're corrected by him. You know, those are the two very things that we tend to do. Despise God's chastening and faint or get weary, get tired, worn down. Okay, beware now. Those who continue in that attitude and continue to chafe at God and continue to rebel against God, they have despised God's chastening in their lives. It's going to get serious for them in just a moment here. Now, don't let your mind rush to the conclusion, which I did for many years, that these bastards or illegitimate sons are unbelievers. They are not unbelievers. Now think with me, the writer to the Hebrews is addressing what kind of audience, saved or unsaved? Saved people, genuine believers in Jesus Christ. These bastards are not unbelievers. Now your Calvinist friends would love to convince you that these bastards are those who simply profess to be saved, but they didn't persevere in the faith, so they're really demonstrating the fact that they were never saved in the first place. That is not Theologically or exegetically correct. Don't let that strong language there of bastards confuse you. These bastards or illegitimate sons are not contrasted with technon, the word used for Christians in general. They are contrasted with huios, the word used for mature firstborn sons. So these illegitimate sons are immature carnal saints that have spurred God's chastisement in their lives. Look at the end of verse 8. They are not sons. They are not huias. They're technon on steroids. (laughs) They're fleshly, carnal believers. One commentator said this. Listen closely. One reason it must be concluded that these bastards represent regenerate believers is because the warning of being potential bastards is addressed to the readership with the second person plural. The you refers to genuine believers. Yet not all genuine believers will be genuine heirs. The warnings of the book of Hebrews are addressed to genuine believers urging them to qualify for their heavenly inheritance. End quote. That's good. You say, well, who are these illegitimate sons? These bastards. You know, they're just like Esau. Look down at verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. They're like Esau. Esau was disinherited for being a carnal man. He was not interested in spiritual things. These illegitimate sons, these bastards, have not endured God's chastening in their lives. So God has stopped chastening them. He's disinherited them. He now considers them unworthy of the better resurrection of chapter 11, verse 35. Are you connecting dots here? This has nothing to do with unsaved people. These bastards will not be inheritors in the kingdom. They will not be rewarded. They will be punished. They will be sent to the darkness outside of the new Jerusalem in contradistinction to those who do endure God's chastening, those whom God calls sons, huias, mature, firstborn sons, those of you who endure his chastening in your lives. Now, in case you are wondering how God could call his very own sons bastards, I want you to remember this. This is very important. God is speaking in terms of reward, not relationship. That's important. 
That's what this whole book is about. It has nothing to do with your relationship. It has to do with your fellowship. It has to do with reward. In other words, to say it yet again, these illegitimate sons are being compared to firstborn mature sons who have persevered. These bastard sons are still sons of the father, but they're illegitimate as firstborn sons. They don't qualify to be firstborn sons. Now, by way of illustration, and for sake of time, I won't take you there. Bear with me just a few more minutes. We'll try to finish up here. Remember back to the book of Judges, chapter 11? Remember the guy named Jephthah? Let me remind you about him without turning for sake of time. Jephthah's father's name was Gilead. But Jephthah's mother was a harlot. Jephthah's half-brothers shared the same father, Gilead. He was their father too, but they had a different mother. So they scorned and ridiculed and mocked Jephthah because he was from a different mother. But Was Jephthah from the same father? Yes. But the brothers say to him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house. Uh Aha. Even though Jephthah was the natural firstborn son, ancient custom disqualified an illegitimate son from receiving an inheritance, the inheritance of the firstborn. It is in that sense that a bastard in Hebrews chapter 12 is excluded from the inheritance. Yes, they're sons of God the Father, just as you are. But because of their squalid behavior, their lack of perseverance, their chafing at God's discipline in their lives, they are disqualified from inheritance. They will not obtain a better resurrection. Are they children of the Heavenly Father? Yes! But they're like illegitimate sons. They're castaways when it comes to inheritance, not worthy to inherit. Now again, for the sake of time tonight, I cannot go to Galatians chapter 3 and give you yet another illustration of this in the New Testament, but the argument goes something like this. Because Ishmael was the son of the bondwoman, he could never be the inheritor of the promise, even though Abraham was his father. The firstborn status was given to Isaac. Now on that basis, Paul urges us in the book of Galatians not to live like the bondwoman's son. Fallen from grace, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. Because if we do, Galatians 5.21, we will be disinherited. The point is this. Ishmael was as much the son of Abraham as was Isaac. But Ishmael did not receive the inheritance Isaac did. You know why? Because Ishmael was considered the illegitimate son. Isaac was considered the firstborn. In the Roman world, Zane Hodges says, an illegitimate child had no inheritance rights. So you, Christian, put the dots together tonight. Bear with me, we're nearly complete. Put the dots together in your own heart. If you despise God's chastening in your life, and that continues to be a pattern throughout your life, and you chafe, and you get angry at God, and you get discouraged all the time, and you don't respond in joyfulness, and that's a continued pattern, God just might begin to treat you as an illegitimate bastard son, like Ishmael, and in the context of Hebrews chapter 12, like Esau. You know, Esau never ceased to be a son of Isaac. But he was disqualified from the inheritance, even though he was the firstborn son. That privilege was conferred upon the younger son because Esau just didn't regard spiritual things. And if you don't regard spiritual things, you won't be God's firstborn son. You won't obtain a better resurrection. Even though God's your father, you'll be considered illegitimate, bastard, with respect to inheritance or reward. So here's one of the main points of Hebrews in closing, Hebrews chapter 12. God lovingly disciplines all of his children. But those who keep despising him, he stops chastening. And he treats them as illegitimate with respect to inheritance and reward in his kingdom. He may leave you to yourself if you continue down that path, or... 
He just might kill you. And we have examples of that in the scriptures. Dr. Thomas Constable said it, and I quote, The writer seems to be saying that God disciplines all Christians, but when a believer apostatizes, God may let him go his own way without disciplining him further, especially if he has not responded to previous discipline, but has hardened his heart toward God. God disciplines Christians to prepare them for future service, but when they apostatize, he stops preparing them for future service. End quote. I close with verse 25. Look what it says. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. You know, some of the other fellows here, Brother Willis and uh, Brother Philip, they repeatedly have brought to our attention that in Hebrews, uh, God tells us to pay attention to his spoken word. And here we see it again. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. So tonight... God has given you a message from his word that says, look, I am child rearing you and it's for your good. Stop chafing and resisting my child rearing in your life. It is for your good. I want you to obtain the better resurrection. And saint, if you continue to chafe, continue to rebel, continue to stiff arm God, he just might declare you a bastard son with respect to inheritance. Yes, you're eternally secure, but you will not receive reward. You will not obtain a better resurrection. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of this passage. I pray that you drive it home deep in each one of our hearts. Lord, I need this. Every person here who is a born-again believer needs this. Lord, we shouldn't be flipping about this. We need to get serious about your chastening in our lives. And we need to receive it with joyfulness. And Lord, I know that's not easy, but it's part of growth. And you do say in your word that your grace is sufficient. We thank you for that. May we appropriate it. Now, Lord, do a work in every heart. I pray that when we go home from here, we wouldn't forget about this, but you drive it deep. And do the work you desire to do, Spirit of God. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.